Shema. Shema. Hear, O Israel. Hear, O Israel. The Lord is our God. The Lord is our God. The Lord is one. The Lord is one. Love the Lord your God. Love the Lord your God. With all your heart. With all your heart. With all your soul. With all your soul. With all your strength. With all your strength. And love your neighbor as yourself. Love your neighbor as yourself. I like the uh, I love delicate. Yes, I am very delicate. Like a flower. All right, so I, the way I want to start out this morning is I want to see that if, if us in collaboration can tell, we don't have to go into great detail, we can if you desire, the Exodus story. Um, so who would like to start? Moses. <laughs> okay, so we're starting with Moses. That's where we're starting the Exodus story. What, a, what part of Moses' life are we starting at? We can. Okay. Okay. What happened next? Okay, he was found. Raised. Okay. As an Egyptian. Raised as an Egyptian in Pharaoh's household. His sister had been watching, so his mother was able to nurse him. Yeah. So his sister uh, jumped in and intervened and allowed then for Moses' own mom to basically uh, raise him, nurse him, and wean him. So. Okay, so jump forward some amount of years and he kills an Egyptian. Had a lot of anger issues. Okay. Had some anger issues. Okay. Is there anything we want to add to the reason he killed an Egyptian? He's picking on us. Well, I want to say the Egyptian was hurting one of the Jews. And then, um, no, I think I had that wrong. Found out who he was? He found out that he had a Hebrew. He was Hebrew. Yep. So he discovered he was Hebrew. But then he sees an Egyptian, and the Hebrew there implies that the Egyptian was about to kill the Israelite, right? We have beating, uh, but the word there is used in terms of beating to death. Um, Moses intervenes. Uh, when Moses intervenes, ends up killing the, uh, the Egyptian, the, uh, basically the uh, slave driver uh, type uh, individual. Uh, and then flees from Egypt, uh, afraid for his own life. All right, so that's where we're at. What, what, what's now? <coughs> years go by and God calls him to return to Egypt and free his people. Okay. Any input on that moment? Burning bush. Burning bush, right? 
Okay. So uh, then he goes back to Egypt. Who's Aaron? Aaron's his brother. He felt like he couldn't speak well. He didn't want to go by himself. Okay. So he says he stutters. I have a stuttering problem. How can I stand before Pharaoh? Okay. So Aaron's sent to be his mouthpiece. Okay. Pharaoh says no. Pharaoh says no. And then he says, let my people go. And Pharaoh says, why don't we just play the video from... <laughs> you know, I, so here's a quick confession for you. Early on when I went into ministry because I was, you know, a, a white male who could sit up straight and speak in an articulate way, uh, I was ushered into leadership immediately within our church. And uh, I realized at one moment, hold on one second, Ruby. I realized at one moment that my knowledge of certain stories were tied to cartoons and not scripture. Uh, and I had some false memories of the text because I remember Prince of Egypt, the movie, uh, as opposed to knowing the actual text. Uh, thankfully, I was too old to remember Veggie Tales, so there was no cucumbers or peas dumping slushies off of things at, at individuals. But um, but I realized that I had more insight to scripture from uh, creative licensed movies than I did from actually having ever read the text. So that was a quick confession for you guys. So if any of you are like having flashbacks to Prince of Egypt, trying to come up with the answer, <laughs> you are not alone. That's right. Charlton Heston and... Yeah, there you go. All right, Ruby. And then the plagues happened, yes. Does anyone know how many plagues? 75. 27. Wait, what is the question? How many plagues? <laughs> Ten plagues. Very good, Charlie. We, you can make that connection. The text doesn't actually say that, but that seems to be what's happening, which is why I would argue there's actually 11 plagues because Pharaoh was a plague himself and God hardening Pharaoh's heart was God showing power over the God of Egypt because... Pharaoh believed himself to be a god. Um, so, all right, so we're at the 10 plagues. Now what? Pharaoh finally agrees to let the Israelites go. Okay, so Pharaoh lets the Israelites go. Blood. So right before Pharaoh agrees, uh, the death of the firstborn of all the households that were not marked with the blood of a lamb uh, died. And then Israel is uh, let go. Then what happens? Pharaoh changes his mind. What's that? Changes his mind and they go after. Pharaoh changes his mind. They go after the people. And then there's the Red Sea. Mm -hmm. What happens at the Red Sea? Before he splits it. Don't the Hebrews get really upset and it would be best, they say to Moses it would have been best if they would have been in Egypt instead of out here. Uh, that may say it there, but I know it definitely says that later. 
can cover the pillar of fire and pillar of smoke. Okay, so there is a pillar of fire and smoke, right? Uh, cloud and fire. And that, that did what at the moment of uh, the Red Sea? Okay, it stood between them and the Egyptian army, right? And then while it stood between them and the Egyptian army, that's when God told Moses to take your staff and hold it over the water and the seas sea parted. And then what happens? Okay. And if you remember from the movies, there were giant whales in this Red Sea for some reason. Very, very, uh, very populated with large blue whales, evidently. Uh, I think it's, I think it's Prince of Egypt. There's like a giant whale in the background. You're like, yeah, I don't know. We are the Red Sea and parted. Israel is going through, and then once Egypt, the Egyptian army starts to go through, and they get in there, that's it closes, yes. And the Israelites take stones and they build stones on remembrance. Whenever God's faithfulness, they take stones from the bottom of the sea. Mm -hmm. they pass, they pray, I think they praise God there. It's Moses' song right there, but that's. Mm -hmm. I, you might be right. I might be misremembering. You have me questioning that now. I thought Mary had the tambourine and she took all the women and they sang. Is that in the movie? No, I'm pretty sure she wrote the song. I performed by Mariah Carey. Is that the uh, that sounds right. They also do something when they, they declare God what? King. Right? So there's an interesting, so this is, this is not in the, in the Bible, but there's an interesting rabbinic tradition that the people began celebrating when the sea collapsed on the, Roman, or on the Egyptian soldiers, and God rebukes the people for celebrating and says, how dare you celebrate the death of my people when Egyptians were killed? And he said, I have known them for generations and I have loved them. And this was not easy for me to kill these people. How dare you be happy about it? Right? Um, that's a very powerful uh, rabbinic tradition uh, that I think we see in the Jonah story kind of repeated. And I think we see in the way that Jesus behaves with the Roman oppression of Israel in the first century as well, uh, to that God will do whatever to rescue God's people, but we aren't to celebrate necessarily when death uh, is the result. Um, all right, so Red Sea collapses, Egyptian uh, army is taken out. Uh, the people build an altar or, a, or at least standing stones. They declare God to be king. And then what happens? They begin their walk uh, in the wilderness for 40 years. Did they think it was 40 years at that point? How long did they think it was? A couple weeks. About 10 days. Wow. Right? So why did it end up being 40? Jumping a little bit ahead. 
I, I always thought it was that it became four years after all the fall and lawlessness what took place, but because God didn't want that generation to enter into the Holy He wanted the offspring of that generation. But why? Why does the text say that they were to wander for 40 years? Because they were whiners. Nope. They didn't believe when they when the scouts came back and reported only to the scouts that the spies went and looked at the land. And what was the spies' report? Well, ten of them said it was horrible and the giants. Two of them said it's awesome, there's milk, there's honey. There's one of there's one was one Mary tribe. And the two that came out of the house of was Joshua and Caleb. And they were the only ones who were able to survive to actually go into the promised land. Mm-hmm. Yep. And Joshua was the one who actually took over Moses' role as leader. Yep. So, uh, Diane, I think you touched on, you know, I, I don't know where you read. I, it's what I often teach about this is that Israel still viewed themselves as slaves. So when they saw the Canaanites, they assumed that they would be crushed and put back into slavery, right? And so God, in whether or not you agree, in God's wisdom, I would argue, allows Israel to remain in the wilderness for 40 years, for an entire generation to pass, the generation that still imagined themselves and had the mentality of being enslaved passes, and a new generation can go into the land of Canaan. Why? Because they would have the mindset of what? Someone who's free. Someone who's free, right? Uh, That's how the rabbis read it, that's how the sages read it, was that God was actually being merciful in allowing Israel to have 40 years, an entire generation, to learn how to be a free people before entering into an area where they might face conflict again, okay? So then what happens? So spies come back. There's debate. God says, well, then you'll remain here for 40 years. Not a single one of you will pass into the promised land, which ended up including Moses. Um, And then what? And then Joshua and Caleb lead them into the promised land, and they have some wars. Mm -hmm. They have some successes and some failures. I think there's a moment where they take things in their own hands, and then they fail. Okay. Um, let's not skip ahead so far. Okay. Uh, that's correct, but let's not jump ahead that far. After the spies return, then what happens? So we have stories of manna, we have stories of quail, we have stories of um, water from a rock. Uh, but what other big piece are we missing that actually next week at uh, Shavuot is giving a Torah at Mount Sinai, right? So Mount Sinai Torah is given. And so this is what I want to talk about is this story, because I think that this story, I can tell you that I believe, I can tell you as if I'm confident, then I say I believe as if I'm not. So take that forever you want. Um, that it still remains within Jewish tradition, 
the most important story of the Bible. I, I'm pretty confident in saying that. But the Exodus, everything is seen and understood through the Exodus story. I would argue within Christendom, until we abandon Judaism, the Exodus story was still the most important story of the Bible. And the Exodus was imagined when the authors of the Gospels were writing. They constantly were drawing pictures of the Exodus narrative into the story of Jesus. Whether it be children being slaughtered at the hands of an oppressive ruler, right, at the birth of Jesus. Whether it be the fact that Jesus' first miracle was turning water into wine, which reflected the first plague. And whether it be that Jesus on the cross, it gets dark like the ninth plague. And then the tenth plague of the death of the firstborn, Jesus, the firstborn of God, dies, right? That the gospel writers, that when Moses appears to Jesus on the Mount of Transfiguration, he says, go and perform the exodus that we write departure instead because... You know, we want it in English and we want to avoid maybe connecting it to Judaism. That go and perform the exodus in Jerusalem. And so we can find throughout all of the gospel narrative, the exodus story being told and retold again and again. That brings me to something that I think is really important. That is something that confounds me within Christendom. And that is the discussion of salvation. So... Uh, small topic. <laughs> That's right. And uh, since we can't meet here at the, after this week, uh, we're just going to stay for one really long session. Um, so let me first hear, what are your definitions of salvation? When you use the word, if you use the word, uh, or someone else uses the word, how do you perceive or how would you say that that word, uh, what that word means? Believing in Christ. What's that? Believing in Christ. Believing in Christ. It's like a turning from our ways of sin and turning being more bent towards God as Okay, so being more bent towards God, turning away from sin, being bent towards God. Okay, what else? It was always praying to me, I feel like, which I didn't, if, if anybody, I, I don't have to go into my whole story, but I wasn't church when I decided to become a Christian. Yep. So I wasn't in a church environment, so I didn't hear the phrases before I decided that I liked the Bible and this God was cool and I wanted to do it. So after the fact, I felt that, especially in my church setting, years later, that the term salvation was framed as salvation being saved, being saved from hell. Okay. So saved because from I believe that Jesus is the Son of God. Okay. So being rescued from hell because Jesus is the Son of God. Okay. What else? That's a great question. I know it is. Don't hurt yourself patting yourself on the back. <laughs> it's, it wasn't any brilliant question. It's just a, it's a hard question. But my brother asked me that same question. What is it? And it's just another lunch conversation. Now, and that seems to morph as every year for me, that the answer. Um, now I see it as uh, true freedom. Uh, true freedom um, through that gate. There's a there's something that takes place that allows us to be free. 
Okay. There has to be a transformation. Place. So you'd say like a freedom, freedom in Christ. Okay. Wait, Chris, I think it's like now. So now, like if I were to formulate an answer on my own, very much from what you said, I feel like it's being saved from myself, like being saved from being captive to my own desires. So, because because what I've learned, which didn't take that long to learn this, that I want to put God first and I want to put people first. And, and the people doesn't include me. So, so for me, I feel like I'm saved from my own selfish desires. Bree, is that your hand up or is that just no, I'm dry skin on the forearm? <laughs> I think um, I think just from listening to salvation is I guess part of it for me is like also choosing choosing to live in a way that cultivates um, like the fruits of the spirit like the, the peace in my life like the, the peace that the blessings that would be given to others like almost creating this like atmosphere of like what I would want heaven to be okay I mean, it seems so uh, plain and simple right now in Galatians. Um, I was reading that this morning, and it's exciting to read, and, and Paul is just going off. I mean, it just, and it, there's just, there's, there is no freedom through what a man can develop. There's the only freedom from a supernatural uh, way. There has to be some type of awakening by us to reprioritize what is important and what is not us first, but God first. And I think that's what happened in, in, in the garden. We, uh, we, Adam just decided and they put God second and then first. Okay. They chose. So let me quickly talk about something that I think makes the discussion about salvation in a healthy way it makes it very difficult to have. And that's because the Bible was written to people in slavery and people who were oppressed. Most of us, though some of us experience oppression in other ways, right? But most of us would say that we don't live an oppressed existence, right? And so for us, when we talk about salvation and faith, we are only talking about a spiritual salvation. When Israel was rescued from Egypt, that was a salvation. They were saved. They were rescued. It was not a religious experience necessarily. It was a physical experience. There was no need for conversion to Judaism if you were an Egyptian who decided to go out of Egypt with the Israelites. Do you see that? They didn't have to become Jewish in that moment. They were physically rescued from their oppression. The reason I would argue that in some countries where Christianity is outlawed, the reason there is an explosion of growth in the church is because people it, they are mysteriously experiencing a feeling, a view of rescue in oppression. For you and I, we have to conjure some of that stuff up, 
right? We have to, we have to find the devil behind every rock, behind every sign. You know, you get a red light and you're late for work. It's not because you slept past your alarm. It's because the devil's keeping you from getting to work on time, right? So we have to conjure up these things that make us feel spiritually oppressed. We have to point to things in culture that people don't like about Christians to say, see, we're persecuted. We have to do this stuff because we actually don't know what it's like to be enslaved physically, emotionally, spiritually, and mentally. And we may experience some pieces of those things in different aspects of our life, but we don't know what Israel felt for 400 years, 10 generations to be the slaves to Pharaoh. We don't know what that was like. We don't know what it was like to be in Jerusalem as a people of God, yet Rome got to tell them what they could and could not do when entering cities, when engaging with other people. They, they did not have freedom. So when God talks about salvation in the Hebrew text, when do you think was the moment that Israel thought that they were saved? Probably when the Red Sea. Yeah. Absolutely. They write the song. They write the song at that moment of expressing their gratitude to God, call God in some way king, and bless God for their rescue. And then later are asked to follow the way of God. So salvation, so why does God not offer Torah to Israel while they're in Egypt? Why does God wait? Because they weren't free to follow it at that point? I think that's starting to get to it. Because then they would have had to choose between what? Life. Life and death. Oh, I don't think so. They have no idea who God is. They're all... God has abandoned them for all they know for 10 generations. Pharaoh would kill them if they were following another God. Think about it bigger than that. You're choosing one evil over another potential evil. You're not making that decision out of freedom. You're making that decision out of desperation. God first frees Israel to allow Israel then to freely decide to become the people of God. Think about that. That if, if instead God gave Torah or offered Torah to Israel in Egypt, Israel would have had to make a decision. Is it better to serve this king or this pharaoh or this God? Instead, God first demonstrates God's power and rescues them and then allows them to freely decide and some didn't freely decide whether or not to then take on and be the people of God, right? What does Israel say at the foot of Mount Sinai? Actually, here, let me read part of Genesis 19, or Exodus 19 to you. Um, if you'd like to stand, that'd be great. Um, I understand if you don't. Exodus 19. On the third new moon, after the people of Israel had gone out of the land of Egypt, on that day, they came into the wilderness of Sinai. They set out from Rephidim and came into the wilderness of Sinai, and they encamped in the wilderness. There, Israel encamped before the mountain. While Moses went up to God, the Lord called 
out to him from the mountain, saying, Thus you shall say to the house of Jacob, and tell the people of Israel, You yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians, and how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now, therefore, if you will indeed obey me, uh, and obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possessions among all peoples, for all the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words that you shall speak to the people of Israel. So Moses came down and called the elders of the people and set before them all these words that the Lord had commanded him. All that the people answered together, all the people answered together, all that the Lord has spoken, we will do. And Moses reported the words of the people to the Lord. And the Lord said to Moses, behold, I am coming to you in a thick cloud and the people may hear my, when I speak with you and may also believe you forever. You can sit down. So when does God call Israel his people? Not till after they're willing to agree at Sinai. Right? That's what the text said. Right? That after they take on Torah, then they will become my people. If you want to be my people, then take on. Listen, in Christendom, we've made a huge mistake. We have confused salvation with being the people of God. We have been rescued and we feel that freedom. But then when we stand at the foot of Mount Sinai, we say, now nah, we're good. We're already free. Thank you. I'm not going to live a life that reflects the way that you would have me live. I'm free. This is a very complicated thing. And it's caused our church to be absolutely 100% neutered in the community. There is no power, there is no impotence of our churches any longer because we have reduced this picture of salvation to just the freeing moment. The scripture says to us, and someday you will stand before the Lord and be judged for all that you have done. You guys know that Jesus says that in Revelation. You will be judged for all that you have done. Because once you experience the freedom and then you decide that I also want to be the people of God, at that moment, you will be judged by whether or not you faithfully attempted to do that. Now, I don't want to get fire and brimstone here on you because I don't view that moment in that way. However, I do want to say that I have often heard taught from the front of a room or from a pulpit that uh, say a prayer and you're good right? That might not be the exact words. If so, I at least give them credit for being that honest. Uh, but we have this impression. We, it has been told to us that it's more important to get people to pray prayers than for us to live according to the way that God has called us to live, right? When we started doing uh, stuff in the downtown of Toledo and uh, working with people that were in generational poverty and trying to create food security for families, the number of times, uh, Bree can tell you, the number of times that our, our group was confronted and people said, man does not live on bread alone, but by the very words of God. And we're like telling us that us doing good works was not pleasing to God, that it was more so about the people there converting or being saved. I would argue if that is the case, then we've ignored all of scripture 
and reduced it to this one word, salvation, that you and I can't even fully comprehend because we are not oppressed people. All right, let me take a moment and get any any feedback, groundswell, frustration, pushback, whatever. Yeah. Um, I I just you know thinking about this in the you know the way that you framed it versus the way the church as a whole has framed it. Um, you know the fact that the Israelites were given a choice as to whether or not to accept I think we have converted so much as a church we, we do this say a prayer and get saved so you don't go to hell mm-hmm. and that whole um, that, that's not a choice I mean sure you can you can choose to say a prayer or not but do you want to go to hell or not you know right. I mean like you know we, we reduced it to that and then Afterwards, the church encourages people to make it all about them. Mm-hmm. You know, um, read your Bible, pray, go to Bible study, go to church. This is where you're going to feel freedom. Um, and sprinkled in there every once in a while, we'll do something that is like what Christ would do. Sure. Like service projects. In the yeah. And that's not to, it's not to minimize the importance of study and prayer, but just that we've made that the ultimate. And it's all about us and what we learn and what we know and how we feel. And it's all about us praying so that we make the green light instead of, you know, the devil, you know, not realizing that someone's calling you the devil because the light just turned red for them. Yeah, yeah. I mean, like it's yeah, and it's all about what we get and what other people don't get because they're not saved. Yep. Sarah, I was gonna say like I've been um, I have a, I don't have like a lot of regrets in life, but one of my biggest regrets is in my early twenties, like I went to Guatemala on a missions trip, and like we didn't do anything practical. We did skits. And we preached, and we told like starving people that you just need Jesus, and, <laughs> like, and you know it took people's money. Like we did this big fundraiser, we raised all like thousands and thousands of dollars. Not in Guatemala. No. Okay. No, so, like up here, but, you know. I was like, and we took their money. churches have gotten more savvy and, and definitely more concerned with um, filling practical needs, but I still think it feels yucky, yeah. that idea of we're going to go and it's very strategic, 
and, and it's, 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 there's a fine line because I think, well, there's nothing wrong with being strategic. We're intelligent, we're smart, we're thinking about what we're doing. But by the same token, now it's, we're going to make them a meal. And, and token is the key word. And, right? And we're going to do the skit, and then we're going to convert them. <laughs> you know what I mean? Because we just met a need, and now they like us. And now they, you can see. And so there's still something about it that feels right. yucky. And it's really hard for me to reconcile that because it's not that I it's not that I don't think that obviously I'm trying to follow Jesus and I'm trying to um, you know commune with God in my life. I think it's important. So why wouldn't I want to share that with other people? But there's something about I don't know. That's why I think food for them is 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 good because it's. It's not about that. It's about continually filling the need. And if they happen to say, you know, when you develop a relationship, that's what it's about. So anyway, I'm sorry. That started to not make sense. So I apologize. So let's, no, but I, so we can I, hold on, wait one second. I want to make sure because we're running out of time that we pull back to the discussion on salvation. So if, if, if that yes. was, okay. We can, this message isn't for us. I mean, if, it isn't, it isn't. Um, if, I, if I learned anything through Galatians, is we, as non-oppressed people, don't experience oppression. We must go and, ex and experience it. We have to help carry another burden. And, or if we, don't, if we do not do that, we cannot grasp this message. It, it's not for us. So the key for us to, the burden is Christ for us. And if we don't meet that burden, and we can never experience Christ. So let me say something to your point, because I agree with you, but I'd like to reframe it just slightly. Um, I think that this is for us, but it's not directly speaking to us. Like this is, you know, this, this text is powerful uh, in the Sudan. Uh, it is powerful in places in North Korea, other places, right, where people are being killed or imprisoned for their beliefs, uh, and maybe not even their beliefs in Christianity, but people are being abused and oppressed by tyrants, right? <laughs> this text, they could read and see themselves in the story as the subject that is being talked to. For you and I, we are left with the complication and the hard work that we don't want to do of reading this and recognizing, as I've said several times, that we are closer to the seat of Caesar than we are to the seat of Moses, right? And we need to remember that. And as we read it and we listen to the experience and the cry of desperation for salvation amongst the oppressed people, and we watch how God takes a strong right arm and reaches in and does whatever God can in those moments to provide uh, relief and salvation, that that is what we are called to. Jesus says, take up your cross and follow me. Do as I have done. If you are in a place of privilege and power, then when we read this text, we should be about the salvific process of the people around us. We should be reaching into the marginalized and reaching into the oppressed and standing up and fighting with everything we have. We should do it in the way that they are asking us to do it, not in the way that we assume it should be done. That's, and that's one of the, and not to take this too, but that's one, when I heard that word 
What about why aren't you affectionate to me? It's, that's where it went. It wasn't about what I had in front of me, my life. It was about what are you forgetting? You know, sure. What are you taking for granted? And, and it hurts. It hurts me now. So would you go, ahead, Diana? Oh, I was listening to kind um, of like what you were saying, talking about like the salvation. I think like recognizing that you have salvation and freedom where you can control the things in your life is really important. And that salvation, like for me, I think about like with my parents and my grandparents and how they what they kind of gave up so that I could have that freedom is important to me. And that's kind of like reading the text. Like people like somewhere down the line gave up and like went through a lot to have freedom. And um, I don't know, I'm just kind of thinking what everyone was talking about of what does salvation look like as like an everyday living. Like I had the, um, you know, opportunity to, to work with um, other nonprofits, and like, that's good, but I, I feel like there's something like missing when your life is so important and you have to go somewhere. Bring, I don't even want to say it's like freedom, but more like just relief to somebody. Like, I, don't, I don't know, like I just, I feel like I can admit that I have salvation, I have freedom, but like what it looks like to bring Salvation to someone is really hard for me because I'm not sure what it is they would want. It's kind of like when you talked a couple weeks ago about like don't do something if you don't know the culture you're entering. Well, I can say that one of the first things that we should be doing is instead of turning our back on the marginalized and the people that don't fit the box of what we would expect for religiosity or Christendom, that we should instead be fighting with everything we have to make the kingdom big enough that everyone has space in it, right? Instead, you know, you guys have all heard this said, I'm sure, Christianity today in the United States at least is more known for what it's against than what it's for. And that tells me that we have lost our understanding of freedom. And we have, instead of trying to provide and create freedom for all the marginalized communities in our cities and in our towns and our neighborhoods, our states and our country, instead, we put Mount Sinai before the rescue. Do you see that? We need to make sure that everyone's beliefs align with ours first, and then we might rescue you if you've convinced us then we might stand up for you against the oppressor. Then we might stand up against the systems that continually uh, oppress. At that moment, if we can get an agreement that you were on the same page on belief, then we can do that, and then we'll rescue you. And that just, I mean, would you guys agree that in some ways, just looking at the section of Exodus, that we have swapped the place of rescue with the place of Torah or Mount Sinai? We have made Mount Sinai first in the church. What do you believe? And then once you tell me what you believe, then I can declare whether or not you're worthy of being rescued. This is the dilemma if God would have offered Torah in Egypt before they were rescued. Like, that's not a choice, right? Instead, we need to, we need to in some way as the faithful 
as people who have stood at Mount Sinai, maybe you haven't yet. Maybe you are still the free person, right? But you have yet to stand at Mount Sinai and say, God, whatever you're about to say, I will do, right? Because that's the thing that gets me also with this passage that we kind of let out, is that uh, they have no idea what God's going to say for the next 15 chapters about how they're supposed to live and function as a people. And they're like, yep, we're good. We're on board. Whatever you're going to say to us, we are going to freely give up our freedom to become the people of God. Right? There was nothing. God wasn't threatening to send them back to Egypt. Right? If anything, they were. They started having fond memories of returning to Egypt. At least then we sat around pots of meat uh, with some of their language. Right? Um, so, all right. Any other thoughts? Anybody disagree or feel like this is this is not something that they're comfortable with? Is that okay too? Anybody? All right. Any last minute questions, and then we're gonna I guess, sing together. I'm gonna pray over you. I'm not completely following you, but that's, I mean, okay. can always open up for conversation later. I mean, that's how a lot of this stuff happens. I mean, it's hard to, as you're trying to rethink some things and think about things, it's hard to get complete thoughts. Yeah. Sorry. I think I was kind of thinking something similar to what Diana was thinking, but I'm not But the church has become oppressive. Not just people outside of it, but people inside of it. And we have completely, and, and we call it freedom. Mm-hmm. Yeah, thank you. It's, yeah, we oppress the people within our. Well, I think that's a lot of church culture has. These are the answers. Yeah. Take them in. Do them. We know yeah. what the answers are. Don't ask any questions. Revitalize. Especially if it conflicts with what I'm telling you is the truth. Yes. Yes. And and I feel like 
there's been a, a to-do list and a model and a format that you're told like this is this is what freedom looks like even if it doesn't feel like freedom even if you're working yourself so hard to get there and you are hurting people along the way like that i guess that's what i was trying to <laughs> Let can I read something from CJ? Uh, CJ said, uh, "We as white people are clearly oppressors in every sense of the word. We're occupying native land. We're enslaving black people in prisons. We're colonizing other countries with forced economic and military force, etc." But I think the famous quote from Lila Watson is relevant: "If you have come here to help me, then you are wasting your time." But if you come here because your liberation is bound up with mine, then let us work together. White supremacy not only limits the lim liberty of our victims, but it's so systemic that it also limits our own ability as oppressors to act in healthy, non-oppressive ways. We need liberation from our own patterns of oppression too. In other words, we are so trapped in oppressive patterns that we don't know how to not be oppressive. So. <laughs> Thank as, you, CJ. <laughs> as always, we love when CJ comments. So it really, uh, with you know, segueing that brilliance, it makes sense that that we that were not oppressed should do be inspiring words as a protest. I mean, we should really consider what we're doing. Yes. And and stop because I can't get past John fourteen. When Jesus says, uh, whoever has my commands, commandments and keeps them, he it is who loves me. And he who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I will love them and manifest myself with them. It's, it, it, I can't read that anymore. I can't and, and not take action. You know, it's interesting to me because... If you read the Torah and the laws of Torah, the commands of God, uh, as John referenced, and you read them through the light of their original listeners and early interpreters of those passages, Torah was the very concept of dismantling power structures that oppress people. Leave the corner of your field for the poor and the sojourner, you know, uh, take care of the widow, take care of the orphans. Like all of this language of Torah was absolutely to make certain that anyone who was marginalized by wider culture, that in a, in a setting that the faithful people of God were, those people would not be at risk or danger. And God constantly reminds them of what? Because you were once enslaved, right? Like you were once oppressed. Um, and so as CJ was talking about like this idea of like, what are the oppressive structures that we are participating in that we don't even know about? And so Torah was at least in that day, the dismantling of the power structures that led to more oppression. That's super powerful in the sense that God first frees the people and then says, if you're willing now as a free people to hear how to live in a manner that does not build up more oppressive power structures, then here I'll tell you a good way to live. And that's what we're called to. Instead, we avoid that, like the plague. <laughs> um, and instead, we are just happy to be free. And I think that there's room for that, but I also think there's a time to stand at the foot of Mount Sinai and say, I'm going to give back some of my freedom 
in order to take on the yoke of Torah, the yoke of God, in order that I might help the world to be more free. Um, and I, I think that, I think that's what we're called to. I think that's what the text calls us to. And I think we've made a huge mistake by swapping the place of Mount Sinai with the rescue of the people out of Egypt. And we do it all the time. Is the yoke for light, not for us, but for the other people that we've oppressed? Is it become lighter? Is that what Christ was referring to? Well, I think, I think what Jesus was referring to when he says, you know, take on my yoke, it is light, is that Jesus was teaching in a manner that reflect the original intention of Torah, which was always the consideration of the other. Whereas the current, a lot of the current teachers in Jesus's day, though not all, right? Uh, Jesus falls very much in line with the, the sage Gamaliel, right? Um, or Hillel. Um, and so, but a lot of the teachings of that day were that there was precision about following Torah, which we still get in the church today. That it's all about precision and exact belief, exact dogma exact whatever and it's only in those moments that you experience god and jesus was like no 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 no. that's not how god functions don't you remember god rescued you first and then i mean we hear it we're talking about abraham abraham was first saved by faith and then was circumcised right like circumcision didn't happen first Following Torah didn't happen first. Freedom happened first. And then the person has the opportunity to make the decision to whether or not to then live in a manner that reflects God's ideas within the world. Um, so, all right. Uh, we are running behind. I apologize. Uh, but the great thing about our conversations here is it's not my fault when we run behind. It's your fault. So you're here late today because of you. Um, I'll sing that. All right, sing, yeah, if you could pick that. All right, so we're gonna sing. Uh, Tally's gonna share a song with us. I like that Don just said Tally's gonna share a song because I don't, I don't have lyrics for you guys. Um, and I feel 